Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Year Polygamy Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, and tonight I'm delighted to talk to a very distinguished, award-winning scholar, Paul Reeve. Paul, can you say hello? Hi. Uh, Glad to be with you. We need you to brag about yourself a little bit and talk about what you do. Uh, You're one of, like I said, one of the most distinguished scholars in Mormonism. Well, that's very nice of you. Um, So I'm a professor of history at the University of Utah, Simmons Mormon Studies professor at the University of Utah. Uh, In 2015, Oxford University Press published my book, Religion of a Different Color, Race, and the Mormon Struggle for Whiteness. Uh, which deals with uh, the history of race and Mormonism, mostly in the 19th century, but uh, also a final chapter that looks at the 20th century and the 21st century. I think one of the things that's unique about you too, Paul, is as you're a white scholar writing about race, and yet your work across the board has been publicly like accepted and celebrated because your work is so good. I mean, we're going to plug the book a little bit, or at least I am for you. We're going to link to it. It's, it's something that everyone needs to read because not only is it illuminating from a historical perspective, but it really reframes things. One of your main theses in the book is that Mormonism is seen as a race itself. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's right. Uh, there is, um, I think, uh, you can see the formation of a racial identity for Mormons um, by outsiders very early on. And I think it begins with Mormons just being labeled Mormonites uh, initially. And then you sort of think about how races get made or constructed is the academic term for it, but um, you know, just how they get made. Um, And outsiders start to ascribe a variety of assumed group characteristics onto this Mormonite identity so that it's not just an individual Mormon who might be um, poor or lazy or, um, you know, characteristics like that. The assumption is that it applies to the entire group. So it starts to accumulate um, a variety of assumed group characteristics Uh, The name transitions from Mormonite to Mormon, and then by the 1840s, they're actually using uh, the the, the term Mormon race. And then the assumed characteristics start to take on physical attributes. Medical professionals, um, an army doctor, actually argues that Mormon polygamy is giving rise to a new race. It's degraded. It's deformed. Um, He believes that... uh, it's creating sterility in the next generation of Mormons. And if the federal government can uh, simply stem the tide of immigrants coming in from outside, um, polygamy will solve itself because it's just creating the sterility in the next generation and it will die out of its own accord. Now we know um, that didn't yeah. happen. <laughs> yeah, we know that didn't happen. Um, but there are genetic disorders in some groups. So... You know, with with Mormons in the 19th century, um, one of the things that um, those who come and look in and suggest that there's a Mormon race, one of the things that they continually point to is that Mormons are so successful, thousands and thousands of converts coming in from Europe. And so it's an influx of new genetics constantly. And it is, in fact, a factor in the federal government's effort at trying to stop Mormon immigration In 1879, the U.S. State Department makes an effort at uh, targeting and eliminating Mormon immigration from Europe. So it it factors into that process. The thought is if you can sort of stem the tide of outsiders, um, polygamy might solve itself because it's creating a deformed race. Interesting. So at the time, you know, you said that there was a doctor that was making these claims um, was there any evidence to back this up? I mean, did he encounter sterile Mormons or deformities? Well, you know, that's that's the interesting thing is you wonder what kind of research the good doctor was doing. Uh, he was sent west as uh, with with Johnston's army, and so he was he observed Mormons for uh, a few years, and then 
he files his report in 1870 with the U.S. Senate, and he just simply makes a claim in, in his report that there is a degraded Mormon body, that you can tell a Mormon when you look at one, and he gives the full-on physical characteristics, um, albuminous and gelatinous types of constitution, receding forehead, big eyes, um, like the whole thing. And I have all of so those things. I'm all of those things. He also says there is genital weakness in the next generation. So, you know, who knows what kind of research he's doing or, you know, if what kind of observations he's making. Um, by the end of 1860, the New Orleans Academy of Sciences has a conference in New Orleans on the Mormon body. And all of the medical doctors who attend this conference actually buy Dr. Robert Bartholo's conclusions, except for one. One doctor says, look, Mormonism has only been around for 30 years. You cannot conclude after 30 years that uh, a new race is emerging in the Great Basin. We're going to have to do empirical studies for at least another 30 years before we can firmly suggest that polygamy is giving rise to a new race in the Great Basin. All the other doctors actually buy Bartholo's argument and push them forward, and they buy the notion that there is physical deformity. So I don't know what kind of research he's doing. He, he, he um, ends up working in Ohio, and he uh, writes another report. No indication that he's gone back to Utah, studied more Mormons, but he doubles down on his conclusions and simply elevates uh, the notion that it's a degraded, deformed race, and it's darkening, you know, the American race and making it unfit for democracy. So this gives an interesting segue into, I guess, just how, what was the context of race at this time, generally speaking? And then let's talk about how Mormons viewed themselves and how they viewed other races. I mean, I know that's a huge question. Sure. Yeah, so, I mean, obviously Mormonism, Mormonism is born into a very fraught racial American context. Remember, um, Andrew Jackson signs the Indian Removal Act, the founding year of Mormonism, 1830. And so Native Americans are deemed, uh, even though the nation had attempted a civilization program, the notion that they are culturally inferior and can rise to the same level as whites in, in terms of arriving at civilization. Jackson didn't see it that way. He just simply concluded they were biologically inferior, and therefore there is no hope that they can achieve civilization. And so the best solution is just to remove them beyond the reach of uh, white Americans uh, across the Mississippi into Indian country, and he believes that will be the permanent solution to the Indian problem. And then obviously you have... Uh, slavery, um, which is a significant uh, issue dominated American politics. And fear of race mixing is bound up in both of those uh, issues, the, what, we're, what we're seen as the Indian problem and the slave problem or the, the African-American problem in American politics. So most states in the nation have laws against race mixing. Senator John C. Calhoun makes a speech on the floor of the United States Senate in 1848. He says, democracy is the government of the white race. So really what they see as at stake is American democracy. If black and white intermix, the fear is that it will create a darkened race of Americans who will be biologically incapable of participating in democracy. The notion was that only white people are capable of freedom and democracy. And you know, for their proof and for their evidence, they just said, well, let's look around the globe. Uh, only white people, only Anglo-Saxon white people are, are participating in democracy, have a government like uh, we do here in the United States. Therefore, all other races are inherently incapable of self-determination and, and democracy. So, so I have a question about that really quick. So you're talking about people are worried that there's this darkening of democracy, as, as you said it. It's interesting if you sort of juxtapose that with the Book of Mormon theology, which is the idea of lightening um, God's, God's democracy, God's kingdom. And I mean, is that a fair parallel to draw? Yeah, so, so whiteness is, is seen as normal, right? It's seen as 
uh, essential for participating in, in American democracy. So the first Congress, 1790, says establishes the conditions you have to um, have to be able to naturalize as a citizen. And they say you have to be free and white. And then, like I said, Calhoun says, you know, democracy is the government of a white race. So with, with that as context, then you have the Book of Mormon uh, that also has racialized verses. And so Mormons see Native Americans as fallen descendants of ancient Israel and that they have a mission to redeem ancient Israel. And one of the ways that they can do that is through intermarrying amongst them and making them through intermarriage white and delightsome, bring them with them towards whiteness, in other words. So, yeah, Mormons are uh, part of this broader context, but they actually have a different vision than most Americans at the time about who Native Americans are because the Book of Mormon informs their perspective on Native Americans. And there is a racialized reading of that Book of Mormon that will inform Mormons' uh, interaction with Native Americans. So one of the things I was taught growing up is that everybody else in the country was terrible to Native Americans, but Mormons were better. And I know this is a broad question too, but do you think that that's fair to say? Because, you know, you just, you just mentioned that we had a different relationship with Native Americans than, or in even a different context than a lot of other Americans. Do you think Mormons were nicer? Were they better when it came to Native American race? You know, um, unfortunately, no. Although, um, you know, I, I don't think we should generalize. Um, so sometimes I think definitely Mormons were nicer. Um, and there are specific examples that I encountered in my research. So when the Black Hawk War is going on, um, I read the ward minutes of a, of a tiny little ward in southern Utah. And the minutes said that, you know, they had their monthly fast and they collected the donations and, and they said that there were no poor amongst them. And so they gave the food and the offerings to a Native American band that um, was kind of attached to this little town. And if you understand sort of the broader context of American, uh, Native American interactions, when white settlers were at war or um, in, in conflict with Native Americans, they typically used it as an excuse to simply eliminate them. And here you have, in the context of the Black Hawk War, when Mormon settlers were at war with Native Americans, you have this community actually uh, taking their fast donations and giving it to a Native American band rather than using the war context as an excuse to annihilate them. So there are specific examples like that. But, you know, I, I say in the book, you have to understand that um, the associations were complicated between Mormons and, and Native Americans. So you have Mormons marrying Native Americans, Mormons murdering, murdering Native Americans, Mormons going to war with Native Americans, Mormons befriending Native Americans, Mormons uh, employing Native Americans. But ultimately, what happens in Utah Territory happens across the American nation, wherever white settlers go, Native Americans are rounded up and placed on reservations. And the same is true in, in Utah Territory. So Native Americans go from controlling about one, well, from controlling 100% of the land base that we call Utah today to 4% of the land base by the beginning of the 20, 20th century. So it's a 96% land loss and white settlers are responsible, right? Um, I mean, it just happens wherever white settlers go. Is it the same as, for example, California? No, California, uh, there's a recent book out, award-winning book called American Genocide. Uh, the governor of California authorizes uh, settlers there to just go Indian hunting and thousands are just massacred. So no, it's not that, but it's also, um, the story ends up being the same in terms of uh, Native Americans are, are, are placed on reservations is, is, is the end result. Yeah, Christopher and, Smith brought up, we had had a conversation about this and he's working on his, he finished his dissertation, but he says that Mormons are responsible for the removal of Indians at a rate faster than, than everyone else. But he based it not on, like you said, genocide, but it was the fact that Mormons' cattle ate the crops of Native Americans, ate their food sources, crowded them, pushed them out of land and things like that. So that's what you're saying. The impact was similar, even though the methods weren't the same. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's right. Um, 
So you have the loss of land across the course of the 19th century. You have the loss of life. Um, Pre-settlement um, estimates are around 20,000 Native Americans, down to about 2,000 by the beginning of the 20th century. So, you know, that's just a byproduct of uh, white settlement, and it happens wherever white settlers go from the first settlers all the way um, across the American continent. I mean, I wish we could dedicate an entire episode on Mormons' relationship with Native Americans because I think it's fascinating. But I, I do want to get into the polygamy ties here since it's the year of polygamy. Uh, so while that is happening, there's this really complicated, uh, huge issue going on in American Manifest Destiny settling colonization with Native Americans. How are other races viewed? Uh, and I'm want to specifically start getting into this African-American doctrine, because this is something that still affects fundamentalists today. Sure. So, uh, you know, the, the, the case that I make in my book is, is simply that the first couple of decades of Mormonism, Mormons have a very open racial vision. They are uh, proselyting and converting African-Americans uh, the first documented African-American to join uh, the Mormon faith is in 1830 in Ohio amongst the converts uh, that those early missionaries win when they go through the Kirtland region is a man by the name of Black Pete who joins Mormonism. From the founding year all the way through uh, the 19th century, there are African-Americans who are joining the faith. And Mormons in those first couple of decades have an open vision in terms of priesthood ordination as well as temple admission as best as I can determine, right? So a couple of very well-documented black priesthood holders in the first couple of decades of Mormonism, Elijah Abel and Key Walker Lewis are the best known and the best documented. There may have been others. The evidence in my estimation is inconclusive on, on some of the rest, but, but nonetheless, evidence is solid that uh, Joseph Smith is sanctioning uh, the ordination of uh, black priesthood holders. And Elijah Abel also receives his Washington anointing or initiatory rituals in the Kirtland Temple. Uh, that was as much of the temple uh, rituals that had been introduced to that point. The endowment isn't introduced until the, the Nauvoo period. Uh, Elijah Abel also participates uh, amongst the earliest to participate in baptisms for the dead in Nauvoo. Uh, he moves to Cincinnati uh, before the endowment is introduced. And so I don't know what would have happened had he been there, but published in the Times and Seasons newspaper in Nauvoo is an articulation of an open racial vision for who will be welcomed into the Nauvoo temple. And they specifically say people of all colors, including black people, will be welcomed. So it gives an indication that uh, in those first couple of decades, they do have an open racial vision of inclusion for temple admission as well as for priesthood ordination. And Brigham Young himself, on record in March of 1847, as favorably aware of Q. Walker Lewis as a black priesthood holder. He describes him as one of the best elders, an African in Lowell, Massachusetts, and he calls him a barber. And all of those things fit um, Q. Walker Lewis, who was a elder in the Melchizedek priesthood in the Low Massachusetts branch and by trade was a barber. And Brigham Young describes him as one of the best elders. So he's on record in 1847 as favorably aware of, of Key Walker Lewis. Uh, so Mormons have this open racial vision, I guess, is the point I'm trying to make. So I have another question about that. Um, Connell O'Donovan, who is a historian that's done a lot of excavating history of black Mormon, early black Mormons, he wrote a paper. He didn't publish it, but he wrote a paper, and I'm sure you're familiar with it, where he talks about miscegenation and he his, I think if I'm understanding what his point is, he says that Joseph Smith was a lot more progressive when it came to, to black people and it changed with Brigham Young and you, and he claims that you can see the change when Brigham Young 
was going on trial in Massachusetts for essentially what we would understand as polygamy, but what other people understood as adultery. So I think it was, um, oh my goodness, I just blinked on her name. <laughs> I should know his, it was his uh, second wife or whatever, and she was already married to someone else. And so he gets, he gets trotted out in the Massachusetts paper as being um, this, this adulterer and his whole image is on, is on trial. And at the same time in Massachusetts, in the, in one of the branches there, Joseph Smith's brother is letting, um, and helping black men marry other women. And so I think Connell, if I'm understanding his argument correctly, Connell is saying that it sort of enraged Brigham that he had to, I mean, his first attempt with Martha Brotherton, he's, he's shamed, he's, he's uh, rejected and then shamed. And she goes to the press and talks about his failed attempt to, to propose to her. And then he's, you know, in the press being called all these terrible things while black men in the Boston branch are taking on wives. Does that make sense? Have you heard this story before? Yeah, so um, I've heard that. I I guess I, I probably would see things a little bit differently than than Connell in terms of um, the evidence and how you know the ability to kind of link it to what may or may not be going on with with Brigham Young. Um, and you know, Connell I think um, calls uh, Joseph T. Ball um, black, and I'm not convinced that that he is. And so you know, I think there are different pieces of evidence um, with what's going on in, in Massachusetts that may not lead us to the same conclusion, I guess. But I think certainly Brigham Young's position about race does change from March of 1847 when I talked about uh, him citing Key Walker Lewis favorably to December of 1847. And what happens in the uh, interim is that he does become aware of interracial marriages amongst Mormons. And he's already aware uh, in March of 47 of William McCary because it's in the interview with William McCary, who is married to Lucy Stanton, who is a white woman. And they're both present for the interview in March of 1847. It's in that interview that Brigham Young because McCary is complaining, hey, I'm not being treated well because I'm black. Saints at winter quarters are discriminating against me. And Brigham Young is defending Mormonism by saying, hey, we don't care about the color. He actually says that. And he cites Q. Walker Lewis as a black priesthood holder to substantiate that Mormons don't discriminate based on color. Brigham Young then goes to the Great Basin, comes back to winter quarters, and is met with news that William McCary, the very man that he had that March 1847 interview with, has formed his own schismatic group and performed a variety of uh, sexualized sealings with white women. And so this may be the case you're, you're thinking of, um, but this is at winter quarters. And William, William McCary, a black man, is um, conducting his own sexualized versions of sealing ceremonies with white women forming his own schismatic group. When the apostles become aware of it, they excommunicate him and his followers, and he leaves Mormonism never to return. Brigham Young is also met by news that in the Low Massachusetts branch, Enoch Lewis, Q. Walker Lewis's son, is married to Mary Webster, a white woman, and they have a child together. And so that news combined with William McCary's exploits come together in a meeting on December 3rd of 1847, where the meeting goes on for over four hours. We only have 13 lines that survive, but those 13 lines are drenched with Brigham Young's anger over race mixing. And he argues that uh, the penalty should be capital punishment. Um, if black and, and white mix. And that's very different from where he was in March of 47 because Lucy Stan, the white woman, was with William McCary, the black man, in that interview in, in Winter Quarters in March of 47. And so I think um, the combination of William McCary's exploits as well as news of Ian Lewis and Mary Webster's wedding uh, and having a child together in Massachusetts help us to account for Brigham Young's um, transition. And I think interracial marriage is a part of that transition that takes place. Okay. Yeah. I think that, I mean, 
you got the history. It was Joseph T. Ball that it started out with. That's I think you are summing up what Connell said. It's probably me that botched it. And just so everybody knows, um, I'm always big on naming the women, and then I forget to name the woman. I, I, I was talking about Augusta Adams Cobb in Massachusetts. So, so yeah, you account for the shift, because I, that was going to be my next question, is why did we move from Joseph ordaining people to this idea where we have slaves coming to Utah and, you know, Jane Manning James, who we can talk about, is sealed as a servant, may or may not have been sealed as a servant, those kind of things. What changed? Yeah, so um, I I think, you know, March of 1847 is sort of the apex of Mormon openness. Um, That includes Brigham Young. Like I said, he's on record saying we don't care about the color. And I think um, fear of race mixing is one of the things that accounts for the transition it's not until January and February of 1852 you have the first public articulation of a race-based priesthood restriction by a prophet president in Mormonism. And so the other thing that changes, I think, is just you have people gathering to the Great Basin. And Mormonism has cast a very wide net in terms of who has been brought into the gospel fold. And they have included free blacks, enslaved blacks, slave masters, white slave masters, abolitionists, anti-abolitionists. Everyone's being welcomed into Mormonism. That's how open their vision is. The Presbyterian, Methodist, and Baptist church all experience schisms or complete splits altogether over these same complicated issues. Mormonism just simply says, we accept everyone. If you're a slaveholder, yeah, we welcome you. If you're a black slave, we welcome you. By the time they get together in in 1852, uh, the territorial legislature is attempting to create order, racial order, out of the groups that have gathered to the Great Basin. And, you know, Brigham Young will assert white over black and uh, free over bound in that 52 territorial legislative session. And race mixing is also very much a part of his concern in the speeches he gives to that territorial legislature. So I think it's very much on his mind and and one of the reasons why he's concerned about priesthood ordination, um, because he comes to conclude that, uh, like broader America concludes about democracy, that mixing with black people will end uh, priesthood, and in his 5th of February 1852 speech, he simply says, if all the elders uh, marry black women, the, the church will be in ruins because it will bring the curse of Cain upon the church. So this year is also interesting because 1852 is the first public acknowledgement of polygamy. You know, Orson Pratt goes on his sort of PR mission to the East. And so I can't help but wonder, I mean, we see Brigham Young in his discourses too, um, because, you know, the the announcement is later on, a few months later, but Brigham Young is experimenting with who gets priesthood at all and higher orders of priesthood. And this ties in with polygamy as being, you know, the sort of higher law or the fullness of the gospel as, as fundamentalists would understand it now. So I think you're right. I think Brigham was experimenting with priesthood generally, you know, and as Joseph Smith, we know, went through several iterations of reorganizing the priesthood and, and those kind of structures. Um, do you think, do you think, this is, this is kind of a fraught question, and if you don't want to answer, you don't have to, to say, do you think Brigham Young was a racist? I mean, is that a fair thing to say now, or is it one of those presentism arguments? Well, so... I don't think Brigham Young's inherently a racist because you have to account for his transition over time. And like I said, in 47, he's articulating an open racial vision. So I think it's a mistake to just assume that Brigham Young is just born a racist, a product of his time. I think you have to account for the transition that we see take place in his own position vis-a-vis race. Uh, Does he articulate a, a racist position in 52? Yes. Uh, you know, you can read his speeches and um, 23rd of January speech and then the 5th of February speech in the territorial legislature. Uh, he, is, he is making claims that racialize black people uh, and argue that simply because um, of their skin color, they're not eligible for uh, higher ordinances in Mormonism, including the priesthood. And so 
that's a that's a um, you know, that's a racist argument. Anytime you prevent someone from having something that's available to everyone else simply because of their race, that's an act of racism, and that's the position that he stakes out in 1852. Um, I think it's important to know. So. Um, for for my book, I uh, uncovered uh, some speeches that had never been transcribed from that territorial legislative session. And it's important to know that Orson Pratt, person that you mentioned, who will later that same year announce publicly the practice of polygamy, actually is at odds with Brigham Young in the territorial legislative session. He argues that, so Brigham Young sticks out a claim that he never deviates from for his um, priesthood denial, and that's the curse of Cain. He says that Cain kills Abel, and because Cain kills Abel, he's trying to usurp his position in that great chain of being that we all need to be linked back to Father Adam in these sealing ceremonies, right? And um, Cain was trying to usurp Abel's position. And so all of Cain's descendants, which he understood to be who he understood to be Black people, okay, which was a common understanding that predates Mormonism. Uh, all of Cain's descendants will have to wait until all of Abel's descendants receive the priesthood before Cain's descendants will, will be able to receive the priesthood. Um, Orson Pratt rejects that in the legislative session in a debate with Brigham Young. He says that God may very well curse a given generation, but curses do not pass down from one generation to the next. Curses are not multi-generational. And in fact, it's a violation of the second article of faith. Uh, Joseph Smith says there is no original sin, that uh, we are held accountable for our own sins and not for Adam's transgression. And yet Brigham Young is holding all black people accountable for a murder in which they did not participate. And Orson Pratt says uh, these kind of curses, not multi-generational, uh, we shouldn't do this. Um, speaking of the um, servant code that they're debating about what to do with the black slaves who've been brought to Utah Territory. And he says it's enough to cause the angels in heaven to blush. So he and Brigham Young are butting heads in this legislative session. Um, and it's, it's really a remarkable and important new speech um, that had never been transcribed from the original Pittman shorthand in 1852 until uh, the church history department uh, had LaJean Carruth transcribe it. Um, and working on a volume where we'll publish those speeches for the first time. That's really exciting. And when that happens, we can link to that too, because I do think that that's important. And I think that Orson Pratt, a lot of his statements, at least with plural marriage, carry a lot of weight today to a lot of fundamentalists. And, you know, you said something about this idea of being inherently cursed, and I want to talk about the genesis of that. But it reminds me, there's uh, Amy Tan is one of my favorite, you know, fiction writers, and she writes about being a Chinese daughter. And she talks that she describes a scene going into China where these American tourists are watching this bowl in covered in mud, and he, the bowl is blindfolded, and there's a man behind the bowl just whipping, beating the bowl. So the bowl will just stomp in the mud to help with the bricks. And the American tourists were horrified that an animal would be treated this way. And people that had been gr had grown up seeing this said, no, 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 uh, the bull did that in its previous life. It's okay. It's just getting its just punishment. And so I think that that idea uh, has existed. I mean, it exists in the caste systems in India. This this way that we justify the terrible treatment of others by saying, well, it must be some sort of retribution for a previous mistake. That's that's exactly right. And um, that's what Brigham Young does when he uses the curse of Cain uh, to justify priesthood discrimination against black converts. The other piece of that in terms of Orson Pratt's view that I should probably mention is, is simply the fact that in that same legislative session, they're debating also uh, Utah's election laws and Orson Pratt advocates for black suffrage or black people getting the right to vote in Utah territory. Wow. And he will actually vote against the Cedar City and Fillmore municipal bills, which are just innocuous rubber stamp bills for the creation of Cedar City and Fillmore. And he does so because he says the municipal bills do not allow black people the right to vote. And he's talking in 1852. 
Um, so, you know, he's, he's well ahead of uh, Brigham Young, but also well ahead of the rest of the nation in terms of advocating for black suffrage in that legislative session in 1852. Oh, that's so interesting. I had no idea about that. Um, so thank you for bringing that up. And th- the other thing I was going to ask you is, again, this is a broad question, but where did this idea, can you contextualize the idea of the curse of Cain, just sort of give us like a 101 argument of why would Brigham Young have thought this? Yeah, so the Curse of Cain is uh, part of the broader Judeo-Christian tradition. It predates Mormonism by almost a thousand years. Um, I, you know, this isn't my scholarship. Uh, um, other scholars who have studied the origins of the idea will go back to uh, Jewish scribes, and it's their exegesis or their gloss on, uh, you know, the Hebrew Bible, where they will simply say, well, you know, uh, God curses Cain and puts a mark on him. Um, The Bible doesn't say what the mark is, but um, these early scribes will start to say it's black skin. And so that's a part of the broader Judeo-Christian tradition, just sort of par for the course. Um, For my book, I I found um, a African-American freed black in 1829 who says in his own publication, well, you know, white people are not hesitant at all to tell me that I'm suffering under the curse of Cain. And that was important to me because it's 1829. It's a year before Mormonism was founded. And it's a marker of the racial context that Mormonism is born into. So that this would just be a part of Brigham Young's and Joseph Smith's and other Mormon converts' cultural understanding. They would grow up understanding this kind of racialized identity for African-Americans and bring it with them into their Mormonism. So it's simply what Brigham Young is doing is just bringing the curse of Cain into Mormonism and then using it for his own theological ends. Uh, And it takes on a life of its own once it's imported into Mormonism. Yeah, that's that's really important because that's going to show up. um, That's something that I would say still deeply persists uh, in a lot of fundamentalist circles today. And of course, we have a lot of fundamentalist listeners who ardently believe this doctrine. In fact, we brought this up on the podcast before, but in 1978, when the LDS church lifts the ban, the temple ban and the priesthood ban, uh, most fundamentalists consider the LDS temples finally desecrated. And, you know, a lot of LDS people that are upset by this convert to fundamentalism. So walk us through how we get there. What is sort of the way that uh, the church after Brigham Young, how is this doctrine play out? I, in so many ways, I think that Mormonism is sort of a microcosm of larger politics or reaction to. So talk to us about how it plays out. And I, I know I'm asking you to, as a historian to cover like a century, but tell us yeah. what you think. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, the other, the other aspects, Lindsay, that your listeners might be interested in is the fact that what I document in my book Um, outsiders look in on Mormonism and argue that Mormon polygamy is not merely destroying the traditional family. It's destroying the white race. So, so ironic, right? Like that, the idea that we're the ones destroying the traditional family. Right. So political cartoons will imagine what Mormon polygamy will look like. And it goes along with what we talked about with um, the, the medical community suggesting that polygamy is, is destroying uh, and, and, creating physically deformed bodies. So political cartoons will have the white male polygamist out front and then the long string of wives, and one will be black, one will be Native American, one will be Asian, amongst all the other white wives, right? And so they suggest that because Mormons believe in free love, that love crosses all kinds of racial boundaries that the rest of white America knows are forbidden. And yet Mormons have uh, no problem in performing interracial marriages. And so they uh, believe that Mormon polygamy is in fact destroying the white race, making it unfit for democracy. And that's how they continue to imagine Mormon polygamy to look. Uh, There's a political cartoon published in 1872 in Frank Leslie's Budget of Fun that has Brigham Young with uh, a couple of black wives and black children. It's how they're imagining Mormon polygamy to look. Brigham Young is presiding over the degradation of the white race and his very own family in this particular political cartoon. So one way that you claim whiteness for yourself in the 19th century, in fact, the most significant way you claim whiteness for yourself in the 19th century is in distance 
from blackness. And so what you see happening then is the erosion of that uh, open racial vision of the first couple of decades of Mormonism uh, and movement across the course of the 19th century towards segregated priesthood and temples. And I believe they're firmly in place uh, by 1908 when Joseph F. Smith sort of puts them firmly in place when he falsely remembers back that the priesthood restriction began with Joseph Smith. It was there from the beginning and God put it in place. Human beings can't do anything about it and it will take a revelation to get rid of it. And in fact, it does 70 years later. But what he does is he erases from collective Mormon memory the black priesthood holders who complicate that new white story. And he does that in a meeting that takes place in 1908. But the interesting thing I trace in my book is just his deterioration over time in terms of his own memory of black priesthood holders. So in 1879, he actually interviews Elijah Abel himself and sees Elijah Abel's priesthood certificates. And he defends Elijah Abel's priesthood to John Taylor, who is then leading the church uh, as president of the Quorum of the Twelve, because Elijah Abel has applied for his endowment and to be still to his wife. He received his Washington anointing in Kirtland. Uh, he now wants to receive his endowment and to be still to his wife. So as late as 1879, if priest restriction is unambiguously in place, why would the leader of Mormonism need to conduct an investigation? And that's what happens an investigation in 1879 to try to decide what to do about Elijah Abel, a black priesthood holder. And the conclusion they arrive at is, well, there's uh, incontrovertible evidence that he's a black priesthood holder because we've seen his certificates. They enter his patriarchal blessing into the records of the meeting, which declares him a priesthood holder, an elder. And he received his uh, patriarchal blessing from Joseph Smith Sr. And so they say, there's nothing we can do. Like his priesthood is valid. We decide they will prevent him from entering the temple. And so they use the lone black priesthood holder to start justifying a temple restriction. They send him on a mission. Uh, he comes as his third mission for Mormonism. He comes back in 1884 and dies two weeks later. His obituary is published in the Deseret News, and it's not a typical eulogy. It's basically an articulation of his status as a black priesthood holder. Whoever writes the obituary includes all the dates for his priesthood uh, ordination. They seem fully aware that the space for black priesthood holders in Mormonism is shrinking, and I think they're trying to push back against that by saying, hey, don't deny the fact that he is a faithful Latter-day Saint and a priesthood holder. Um, so you see that uh, transition take place between uh, his death, 1884, and this meeting that Joseph F. Smith conducts in 1908, uh, where he calls Elijah Abel's priesthood ordination a mistake that Joseph Smith himself corrected. So he goes from defending Elijah Abel's priesthood in 1879 to calling it a mistake that Joseph Smith corrected in 1908. And what he's doing then is erasing from collective Mormon memory the black priesthood holders that complicate the story of whiteness and suggesting for the 23, the story is going to be a story of white temples and white priesthood. And that becomes the new memory moving forward. And it just takes on a life of its own. So um, another important point um, to think about is the fact that Brigham Young never deviates from his reason for the priesthood restriction. It's always the curse of Cain for him. The problem is, is that creates a theological pressure point because it's a violation of the second article of faith. And so what you have happening after his death is a variety of invented justifications uh, to substantiate the priesthood restriction. Brigham Young himself rejects the notion of neutrality in the war in heaven in 1869 to the school of the prophets. When someone suggests that as a reason for uh, black skin, he rejects it and returns immediately to the curse of Cain. Those explanations will uh, start to circulate in more uh, commonly after his death and become uh, the go around for the theological pressure point. And then you'll have people like George Buchanan who will start to resort to the book of Abraham to justify the priesthood restriction. Brigham Young never does. And remember, it's not canonized until 1880, three years after his death. And so uh, what you have then growing up in the uh, late 19th and early 20th century are these new justifications for priest restriction. 
even though Brigham Young uses one reason and one reason only, he only resorts to the Bible and he only resorts to the curse of Cain. So anyway, takes on a life of its own, becomes really entrenched in the in the 20th century. You have an effort um, by Hubie Brown in 1869 to get rid of it by vote. Um, David O. McKay has defined it as a policy, not a revelation, not a doctrine. Hubie Brown says, well, if it's a policy, let's just get rid of it by policy vote. And terribly Lee is the lone holdout. He says it's, you know, it's, it's so entrenched, it's going to take a revelation. We can't do this by policy vote. He becomes the next prophet, um, does nothing, and takes Spencer Kimball, who is on record as early as 1963, as calling it a possible error. And so he seems open to, you know, new directions for the priesthood restriction. And, and that new direction will, will come, obviously, in June of 1978. So that's sort of the really <laughs> sloppy kind of uh, history there. No, that was amazing. I mean, it was so good. And that, that's why you're a legit scholar. <laughs> that's why you do this. It's so like my brain is just going. One of the things I want to circle back to is that you said that how a lot of because of the persecution, to use the Mormon term, that Mormons were feeling because of polygamy. I mean, this is really why polygamy and race are tied together. They had to distance themselves, you know, boundary maintenance themselves to say, well, we're not that, you know, we might be this race, but we're not that. And it's sort of this like Gerard's mimetic violence of hurt people, hurt people, you know, and so they want to distance themselves from blackness. So I thought that was really good. And when you talk about Kimball and he says it's a possible error, it sounds like Kimball took a lot of flack for that, but it sounds like he probably wasn't wrong. It seems like I mean, if we define error as a sort of a series of interpretations and maybe miscommunications and some biases that, like you said, take on a life of its own, do you think Kimball was right about that? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's my personal opinion. I mean, you know, you could take it or leave it, but that's that's how I see it. I don't see any revelation that begins it. No one can point to a revelation, the one can that, that begins it. The only revelation on race and the priesthood in, in the LDS canon comes in, in June of 1978. And I see it as returning Mormonism to its universal roots. It's simply restoring Mormonism back to the first couple of decades of, of Mormonism. Uh, they go uh, wandering in the wilderness in search of whiteness, for 130 years, and and Kimball will return them back to where they began. So it's nothing. It's it's not anything new. It's actually uh, restoring Mormonism to its its origins, where they were ordaining black men to the priesthood and allowing black men in, into the temple, and by extension, black women. So, you know, that's that's how I see it. The other part of that that I think is important to mention is is simply how I characterize it in the book is that Mormons are deemed not white enough in the 19th century. And so, like I said, one way you claim whiteness for yourself, probably the most significant way you claim whiteness for yourself in the 19th century is in distance from blackness. And then by the 21st century deemed too white. So the arc of my argument is from not white enough to too white and to claim whiteness for yourself, you distance yourself from blackness in the 19th century by the 21st century, trying to claim a more racially diverse and international identity for Mormonism. The I'm a Mormon media campaign is just, you know, one example of that. Yeah, that's brilliant. I'm going to just ask a few more questions and I'll let you go because you've been so generous with your time. As you're talking about this, like moving away from blackness and then becoming too white, how does the Book of Mormon interact? Because I know that even though Brigham Young used the curse of Cain as his justification, I believe that there are some people that take this idea of curses and darkening of skin that we see in sort of what Mormons would call Lamanites to also apply to black people. Yeah, so Mormon leaders never do. You know, like I said, Brigham Young, he only resorts to the Bible, never resorts to the Book of Mormon. And, you know, I really don't see Mormon leaders ever resorting to the Book of Mormon. They understand the Book of Mormon to apply to Native Americans. Even both Joseph Smith and and Brigham Young uh, refer to Native Americans as their red brethren. And the Book of Mormon curse says a skin of blackness comes upon the Lamanites. And no one ever sort of grapples with the fact that color seems to be wrong, right? Um, They never attempt to sort of work that out. I think notions of the Book of Mormon and and, uh, application to African-Americans, I've seen it in terms of black converts to Mormonism saying, well, the explanation I received from my missionary was 
the curse in the Book of Mormon. So it's misinformed missionaries sometimes who have suggested that that was the origin because they themselves weren't aware of the origin. And so they look at the Book of Mormon and say, that must be where it has come from. So I have seen that manifestation um, with stories of missionaries or uh, stories of black converts when when they asked about it. Um, They've been told by missionaries that that's the source. The church leaders didn't, didn't draw upon it. They did go to, like I said, the Book of Abraham. 1880s, George Buchanan um, starts, but you have then others throughout the 20th century. It becomes the scriptural source for a justification for the priesthood restriction. But like I said, Brigham Young himself never uses it. And Book of Mormon, not used. It's understood to be applicable uh, to Native Americans, not to African Americans. Well, and I think that that's important because even from my own experience, I mean, I would be similar growing up, similar to the missionaries that you talked about, because it, when I was growing up, I was the center of my universe and everybody around me seemed to be white. And so these ra- like black and red, those those didn't even appear in my consciousness because it didn't apply to me. And so I conflated all of that. And I can see as the church is moving away from blackness and becoming more predominantly white, probably early church leaders, it was the same thing. Native Americans are disappearing. Uh, we don't have a lot of black people in Utah or coming to Utah. And so their worlds are also predominantly white. And it was probably just not a distinction that they cared to be very uh, precise about. Do you think that's fair to say? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And, you know, there's just just not a lot of education that's going on about it, especially after 1978. Um, I, I think the LDS leadership is is mostly interested in it just going away and dying on its of its own accord. Obviously, that never happens, but I think that's what they were hoping would happen. And so no one's teaching correct principles or correct doctrine vis-a-vis race and the Book of Mormon. And so Mormons are sort of left to their own devices and come up with their own explanations. And um, it, it seems like a, a logical explanation to read what's uh, the racialized verses in the Book of Mormon to apply to African-Americans as well as potentially Native Americans. Excellent. That's that's a fascinating point that I think is important because it shows up today. One last question, and then I'll let you go. Do you think that there are any are there more charitable ways to look at race that that believing Mormons can take? Maybe Mormons that believe, you know, Lamanites as a literal history, or even believe the Bible and take sort of this curse of Cain. I know I heard an interpretation, and in, was it Fluman? I can't. Someone wrote about this. Uh, blackness in the in the book of mormon meaning actual like fur coats or something it was it wasn't flumen who was it do you remember what i'm talking about it just came out there they are reinterpreting what this idea of the curse of blackness being on and off means and they interpret it as animal skins or something yeah yeah so now i won't be able to think of his name he's at uu so he's published um, an article on it um, jared hickman also has a really great um, article that that basically argues that um, the Book of Mormon taken as a whole is actually uh, anti-racist, anti-racism, um, uh, anti-white supremacy, because uh, the the group that wins the Book of Mormon are the dark-skinned people. And so any sort of suggestion that whiteness is superior, um, the Book of Mormon rejects because uh, the darker-skinned people have moments where they're more righteous than um, the the lighter-skinned people. So some people still like to take, um, you know, skin and the Book of Mormon literally. Um, I think there are really internally internally consistent ways of reading those racialized verses where – you can also see them as metaphors for righteousness and unrighteousness and curses are separations from God because of sin. And when you repent from sin, uh, the curses go away and it's not anything to do with skin color at all. So you have Darius Gray and Marvin Perkins who have YouTube uh, series called Blacks in the Scriptures where they walk um, their listeners through those ways of reading those verses. So you have a variety of different people who are looking at those verses, offering, I think, internally consistent ways of reading them differently than uh, simply racial. And sort of one of the linchpins, I think, is just the fact that Joseph Smith himself in 1840 was going back and revising some of the verses in, in the Book of Mormon and changes white to pure, 
in in one of his revisions when the LDS church headquartered at Salt Lake um, concludes that they make that change in the 1981 edition of, of the Book of Mormon once they've discovered that Joseph Smith himself had made that change. And so it gives an indication, uh, at least for that verse, that the term white was a metaphor for pure as Brigham Young, or excuse me, as Joseph Smith saw it. And, you know, there are ways of reading those racialized verses um, differently. I think Jared Hickman offers one. Um, you have the skin one. Um, I wish I could think of his name. And then you also have Darius Gray and Marvin Perkins who have their own Blacks in the Scriptures uh, available on YouTube. And I think they do a nice job of walking people through internally consistent ways of reading those verses themselves. And I'll link to that. So I, I appreciate you bringing that up because Darius is one of my favorite humans on this planet. And I think, you know, this is my little preachy thing to listeners out there that Mormonism is a global movement now. And it's, as always, we're always contending with with outside ideas like race, as we've seen, as you've talked about. But we also believe in continuing revelation. And so I think it's an invitation. I think the Book of Mormon is an invitation to constantly look at this. And I, I read the Book of Mormon as a social justice work, you know, because that's what resonates with my experience. But I also think that Mormonism it can be a Rorschach yeah. test for your own biases. And I've certainly found that out in my own life. And so um, I think it's just an invitation to rethink our biases. And I don't believe that God discriminates even with priesthood and restrictions. So that's my, that's my soapbox. Um, yeah, no, um, hallelujah. I'm right there with you. Um, and, you know, I, I, I should also mention what you said just brought to mind um, how the Book of Mormon um, was read by one person who encountered it in the 1830s. So this very charged racial context, there's a British officer named Edward Strutt Abdi, who's on tour of the United States in the 1830s. And he gets a copy of the Book of Mormon and he reads it. And he goes back to Britain and he writes a three volume history of his tour of the United States. And in this one section, he talks about, well, I encountered this new religious sect, Book uh, of Scripture. And uh, this Book of Scripture says that all are alike unto God, including black and white. These Mormons have a radical racial vision that will get them in trouble in the state of Missouri. And he proves to be prophetic on that count. But I think it's really important to understand that you have this outsider who reads the Book of Mormon, reads those verses, and understands that here is an open racial vision in this book in 1830. And I think, um, you know, the Book of Mormon also includes that open racial vision, all are alike unto God, which is similar to the Bible and the Doctrine and Covenants, which teach us that God is no respecter of persons. And I think that is the doctrine uh, of the Book of Mormon, the uh, doctrine and covenants in the Bible that is appropriate, um, that I accept, that I believe, and that is a, a wonderful message for all of God's children. Well, that's beautiful. And I'm going to, again, plug your book because I, I just personally believe that every Mormon, whether they're in the church or out of the church or fundamentalists, we have a responsibility to contend with this history and this doctrine. And your book does that so beautifully and so brilliantly. And like I said, across the board, uh, you know, when, when some of us uh, activists heard that like a white guy was writing this history, we're like, oh, great, another book. It is so good. And, and I just want to make a, a plug for Paul personally, like, Paul has has done so much for this topic. Um, one time, Sunstone, we had a conference where we had people of color speaking, and Paul just came to listen in the audience to support. Like, Paul, I just think you are so good and doing such good work, and so I'm personally grateful for it. And tell us, tell us where you can buy your book. Well, that's really nice of you, Lindsay. I really appreciate it. Um, that's very kind. Um, it's available on Amazon. Uh, it's out in paperback now. Um, so it's less expensive. Um, Oxford actually has a 40% off plus free shipping sale going on for the, I think like the next 10 days. So, um, I can send you an email that gives you a code 
for the 40% off. So that's another really uh, inexpensive place to get it. Um, Deseret Book in Salt Lake Valley sometimes carries it, sometimes doesn't. Um, so the mothership downtown, I've seen it sometimes and sometimes not. And uh, people have told me that I've seen it also in other Deseret Book stores. And that Barnes & Noble sometimes carries it. The BYU Bookstore carries it. Uh, so online, really easily through Amazon. But if you're looking for um, something in the Valley, Barnes & Noble, Deseret Book. Um, oh, I shouldn't even say those. Benchmark books. Benchmark sure. books, yeah. <laughs> Go to Benchmark books. Kurt, oh, man. <laughs> Benchmark is a place you need to go for sure. Um, they definitely have copies available. Um, and like I said, I can send you the promo code for, for the Oxford links as well. Well, yeah, I really appreciate it. And we always point people to Benchmark. But this is really timely since there's a sale. So I would encourage everyone to buy it, support your scholarship. And of course, I don't think you're done talking about this issue. So is there anything else you want to leave listeners with before I let you go? Um, I don't think so. I, I think that it's good. Okay, well, Paul Reeve, thank you so much. You are a gift to Mormon studies and to American history, and I've just really benefited personally from your work, so thank you. Yeah, thank you, Lindsay. It's been a pleasure. Utah women making local music. If you like the music on this podcast, it comes from a band called Lady Murasaki. You can check them out at ladymurasaki.bandcamp.com.